Welcome to another Quantum Conversation, brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and I invite you to sit back as we enter the Quantum Realm, that space of the greater part of you. It is your connection to infinite possibilities, infinite potential, and infinite mastery. Welcome to QCTV. We are with Jim Bruton, who has a remarkable story of a near-death experience. We're going to learn about that. We're going to learn how his life changed. And what I find very interesting is this gentleman's background in itself before his NDE, near-death experience, is remarkable. So what changed? Well, it gets spiritual. Let's welcome Jim Bruton to this episode. Hi, Jim. Thank you for being here. Hi, Lauren. Hi, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well today. We are really excited to hear your story. We're going to go right into that. First, I want to share a little bit about your background because, oh my gosh, you are an Emmy winner, right? You, you worked uh, on a film production crew for National Geographic Television. You've lived overseas, you've traveled overseas, you've been in Africa among the wildlife, off and on for 14 years. You've done your own safari company. You invented the satellite video phone, which actually revolutionized the way global news gets out. You've been out in the field with the television crews and um, you've made trips to Mount Everest, right? And you transmitted video from the summit for a Malaysian team. I mean, this is remarkable. You were an NBC News war correspondent. This is amazing. So I'll let you talk a little bit about that life. And then we're going to get to this experience of the continuity of consciousness that you now know and are aware of. Sure. Thank you, Lauren. That was a nice introduction. Now, you know, really trace it back to being a, a child with a lot of energy and a lot of imagination, just like any other child. When I was little, I would watch uh, Wild Kingdom, which was a very popular natural history series every Sunday night. And there were the two hosts traveling all around the world, working with different conservation efforts and filming the work. And I remember thinking, wow, how do I do that for a living? And like you say, I, I got to live in Africa and work on a National Geographic film and win an Emmy. I also love science fiction because, you know, for a child who has an unlimited imagination, that's what science fiction is. And one of my favorite books perfectly named was called The Infinite Worlds of Maybe, which I guess was a precursor to quantum physics. But anyway, I, um, I just love science fiction. I wanted to live in that future world now. And I said, why do we have to wait? I want, you know, I'd read Popular Mechanics, which was almost always promising a flying saucer in every garage, a rocket pack to fly to work, and moon tourism by the year 2000. So um, when I was filming in Africa, Disney uh, sent a film crew out, and they had a satellite telephone, which would at, at that time were some different cases and a, a flexible metalized polyester uh, satellite dish. And when I realized it was a phone, I thought, wow, I'm 300 miles from anyone. My nearest neighbors are seven miles above me in jets, and they have instant communications back to their studios from Africa to Los Angeles. And then I said, you know, hey guys, has anyone ever pushed video over a system like that? And they said, we don't know. And I found out they hadn't. So 
I became the first person to figure out how to do it, essentially shrinking a TV truck into a backpack. So that was my little bit of bringing science fiction into the, the present. And another thing was I was also interested in very old airplanes. My father learned to fly when I was in the first grade. And at that time, several aviation movies were coming out. Uh, one was rather campy, uh, Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines, about a 1910 air race across the English Channel. But it was a lot of fun, and I loved it. Yeah, this is about the time when, like, The Love Bug was coming out and Dr. Doolittle and all that, so it was fine. And then a couple years later, uh, The Blue Max, which was about World War I, uh, aviation came out. So I fell in love with uh, a couple of these airplanes and I actually have uh, since then I've built them and, and flown them. So um, the, the whole, what I'm trying to really sum that up is saying is I've been able to realize all my childhood dreams. And I really think it just came down to being really curious and never taking no for an answer. And interestingly, even with this, you know, like, like say great background, all seven continents, uh, field produced the Titanic for discovery, Mount Everest. I worked for NASA, worked for quietly for the military, did some really great things. Uh, I think from the way I grew up, uh, I had very hands-on parents. I'm not sure that I arrived at the age of 21, um, fully confident and ready to be an adult, which in some ways may have been a good thing, but the fact is, you know, when some people look at my background, then I say, wow, you know, here's a, like a really smart guy, a really driven guy. I say, now nah, here was a guy probably just still looking for validation. But I will say this, the validation I didn't find in life, I guess you could say I did find in death. And that was through my near-death experience. And so that's really what's brought us together today, even more than the, the fun life, uh, the roller coaster ride I've had in, in life here. Well, thank you for sharing that. We're going to go into that experience. It's just, um, uh, it's amazing. You know, here you are, you built and flown planes. It's, it's um, quite remarkable. And never taking no for an answer, never <laughs> taking no for an answer and just believing that you could. Again, that is remarkable. So here you are. Oh, and thank you um, for sharing that vision with all of us about the jetpacks, jetpacks. <laughs> by 2000. We're about 21 years late. <laughs> I'm still ready. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, we're getting close. I saw some paragliders with a battery, uh, a backpack motor propeller, which that, that's amazing. All right. Anyhow, again, it is remarkable and validation of yourself through death. All right. Take us to that day, that experience, the time in your life, what was going on, what was happening? Sure. It's like I took off in, in, uh, the world and I landed in um, my near-death experience. Uh, so yeah, I, my first airplane I built was a World War I fighter and it flew really well and I sold it to an Air Force pilot. And then I built my second plane, which was a 1933 reproduction of what was called a flying flea from France. It looked like something out of a Disney cartoon. It was very whimsical which is probably one of the reasons I fell in love with it as a child. It was very small, like a soapbox derby car, but there was a wing above your head, one behind your head, and a big motorcycle engine right in front of your face. And on uh, October 3rd, I went out for its te first test flight in 2016. So just over four years ago, about four and a half years ago. And it was, uh, it was okay. It, it flew Interestingly, I, I wasn't really happy with uh, some of its quirks, but three days later on October 6th, I said, I'm going to go out and master these quirks. And I took off and I did a pass around the field, 
And it was on my second pass that I lost my engine. It literally just quit. And I remember seeing the propeller just come to a stop. And by God's grace, some reason I just don't panic. Never, never really have. So, you know, I know what to do to start getting it started again. I did get it restarted, but then it quit again. And I was running out of uh, altitude very quickly. Some of these old planes, um, you know, you could say they were almost barely flying. They weren't clean aerodynamically. So once you cut power, you came down pretty quickly. And the only place around that I could make it to was a small lake at a nearby Boy Scout camp. Uh, otherwise, it was just a lot of um, rocky hills, forests, and things like that. And I thought, well, the water's better than that. What happened is I overshot the bank because, again, this is only my second time flying and my first time, you know, really doing a power off controlled descent. And so I overshot the bank and I, uh, hit all of the tree trunks again in the soapbox, in a soapbox derby car, if you will, at about 70 miles an hour. Uh, it instantly just turned the entire aircraft into matchsticks. When I stopped crashing about 15 feet later, um, there was no aircraft left around me. And luckily there was a, a man fishing nearby at that same lake and he saw everything. And he just happened to have his cell phone on him that day. So he called 911 and ran over and kept me propped up uh, where I could still breathe, if you will, uh, until the helicopter came in and picked me up. And it turned out that I had broken all my ribs. I ruptured both lungs. My right leg had multiple fractures. Um, I had a hole in my lower back from the battery breaking loose and hitting me, again, at around 70 miles an hour. And uh, my chin was badly torn up. I was just, like I said, other than that, I was fine, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I really don't have any memory of this. I just remember seeing my propeller stop. And I had one other memory a little bit later in the hospital. And that was it. Um, I actually went through my emails later on and found it was almost two days before my crash that my last memory is. So that, that was pretty interesting. Anyway, the helicopter flew me up to Hartford, uh, Connecticut's trauma center. And I can't say enough good about that entire team. They were just uh, like military efficiency. They were out there waiting for me, uh, took me right in. Uh, they put me on a breathing machine. I was intubated with a tube down my throat and had all kinds of tubing coming in and going out of me. And uh, my family got up there very few hours later and I was talking to my oldest daughter and I didn't know who she was. And I just asked if she could loosen one of my restraints so I could scratch. And she knew that I was thinking back to some training I'd had with the military, that I was in an enemy hospital and wanted to escape. And she said, no. So I actually got out of the restraints myself. And um, I remember her yelling for help and they come, them coming in and they were like angry. And I thought, oh, they're going to hurt me now. So they put me in bigger restraints and they told my family, you know, He's a bit of a handful and he has multiple six plus hour operations coming up over the next week. Uh, some of them only have 2% chance of success and we could lose him at any time. So we recommend putting him into a coma and they agreed. And so that's what they did. And when they put me into a coma here, as best as I can tell. So I don't think it's um, too far fetched to assume that's when my near death experience started and I have no reason to think it didn't last for the entirety of one week here, though I would say time probably passed differently on that other side. That brings us up to the near-death experience. 
that one week, the, the coma is where you had your near-death experience. Were you in the coma for a week then? Oh, yeah. yeah I was definitely in a coma for a week. <laughs> okay. So it's interesting that you lost all your memories. So you're sharing, you know, what you've been able to piece together since then. So tell us about what happens in the coma. I will. And you mentioned something that's very interesting and I thought about later. Uh, when I came out of the coma a week later, I would say it was another week before my mind really uh, became grounded enough to have any new memories begin. So it's interesting that in the middle of this incredibly lucid experience, we'll call a near-death experience, that there are two bookends of basically amnesia, of say two days on one side and about a week on another. But in between those two moments um, is incredible clarity. So I, I again, I do find that interesting. So uh, first of all, let me say this. For those who are familiar with a near-death experience, um, you're probably familiar with a lot of the typical hallmarks, you know, going through a tunnel, seeing dead loved ones, uh, maybe seeing angelic beings or beautiful landscapes or stars and things like this, you know, in this incredible feeling of, you know, basically oneness with the universe and life. Uh, they may have a life review and sometimes they get a big message and then some people are told if you go past this certain boundary, you can't come back. And some people are told you've got to go back. Um, that's, gosh, it seems like 90 to 95, 99% of your near-death experiences, they all pretty much fit that um, template. Mine was incredibly different. <laughs> there was no tunnel. There were no dead loved ones. Um, but I would say there was an analog to a life review. So what happened was... Instead of a tunnel, I'd say it was like I was just teleported, like I simply appeared. Just like when you appear in, in a dream, you know, you suddenly somewhere like in the middle of a field or the building or outer space. And for me, I was on the a terrace of a very tall building, obviously in a cityscape. Uh, it was, as I looked out at the skyline, it was totally a post-apocalyptic scene. It was very gray, very dead, uh, as if uh, it was a thousand years after a nuclear blast or a, a meteor strike or something like that. It was an absolutely destroyed city, maybe like New York, something that huge. And as I, as I looked around, um, I noticed also that the clouds above me were super heavy and dark, like the mother of all storms was getting ready to break loose. But in no time was I frightened. I was just very much an observer, uh, just taking it all in. And as I looked around, all of a sudden I was hit by a wave of nausea, just went right through my gut. And I remember bending over and I said, I don't think I can stand this. And when I said that, all of a sudden I heard a sound off to my left, uh, like a whirring like gears clacking, but more like a whirring sound. And I looked over and I saw what looked like a five-story structure, like a, a sculpture of an egg uh, standing up on its end. But this egg was made out of open lattice work. It wasn't solid, but you could see through it. It was like bands of material were in general shaping this egg. And inside, uh, in the air itself, I could see slight movements and that's where the sound was coming from. So being that this was seriously about the only interesting thing to even take notice of in this 
otherwise dead cityscape, I uh, made my way over to it. And when I did, I, I looked through that open latticework and I could see freely suspended in the air gears, gears, like you can imagine a gear in an engine. But these were special gears. And I didn't know until I came back from my near-death experience and researched it, what kind of gears these are. They're called sector gears. When we see, think of gears, we think of a full circle with little teeth all the way around it, like you might see on a watch or a clock, right? Well, these were called sector gears and they uh, were a partial arc of a full circle. So they're designed to sweep back and forth, meaning their motion has beginning, a middle, and an end. And they also are gears you find in clocks or clock-like mechanisms. That becomes important, I think, as I discuss more what was going on here. As I looked at these gears, I noticed that some were very much in focus and some less so. And when they were, and they were sort of idling like this, just in motion, but you could tell this was an like an idle mode. And they could just pass through each other, even the more uh, concrete ones and the more ephemeral ones. And as I looked at them, even though I will say they were in varying degrees of focus, each time I looked at one, I could see in my mind as if it were a video feed, what its meaning was. And in seeing myself in a few of these, I realized these are events in my future because, you know, I may look older or I might see my children with children who aren't here yet. And I, re and I, I realized, again, these were in my future. And it, at some point I said, you know, I, I put my hand through the latticework to see if I could touch one. And as I did this, I said, you know, what is this thing? And this disembodied voice answered me and it pretty much stayed with me throughout my entire experience. And it said, this is the future birthing into the now. This is the process of becoming. And right at that moment, one of the gears brushed by my hand and I felt another wave of nausea. With a reflex, I, I grabbed that gear, pulled it up through the latticework and threw it away. Now, all of a sudden, all the gears are spinning around like they're really agitated. And as they spun around, I said, what's happening now? And it said, each gear is the probability of a thought, word, or action in your future. Your destiny is resetting itself around what you have removed. And I said, how did I know I could do that? Pull that gear out, removing a future moment. <laughs> the voice literally said, why else are you here? I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what this place is. And it said, you're in the in-between. I said, in-between what? It said, everything, the impossible now between the past and the future. I said, that makes no sense whatsoever. It said, it's impossible in its short duration. Yet here you are standing inside the eternity of a single moment. I said, do you remember the world to which your body belongs? And honestly, I made an effort to remember. I said, I have no idea. And truly speaking, if someone had come up to me and said, if you stay here any longer, you can't go back. I just said, go back where? To your family. What family? I was depersonalized down to zero. I was just an observer, obviously a participant as well. But there was no gem. There was no sense of an individual ego there saying, you know, this is who I am and I need to go back to something that's familiar. I was just that much, like it said, in the moment. And it said to me, it said, then you see the truth and how the past is dust. And I said, okay, okay. Uh, why do some of these gears, these futures that I touch make me sick and not others? And it said, all choices 
have unintended consequences, some unfortunate and some not. The pain each brings you is your guide. And I said, where are the gears that feel good? I said, you're not here to feel good. And then a new gear swung into view. And on this one, I saw a Ferris wheel and uh, my daughter with her children one day. And I was there watching them, you know, just enjoying seeing, you know, the fun through the generations. So that, that was sort of a, a, an answer right there. But obviously, I was there to work. That's what it meant by, you know, you're not here for the rainbows and unicorns. So anyway, more gears emerge within view. You know, again, I'm watching some passing through others, several clear and definite and others less so, but each one had a very clear image of meaning. And each time they came to rest, I would feel around in there for another gear, sorry to say, that would cause me pain so I could remove it. This was the opportunity I was being given to remove unfortunate choices in my future that would lead to my spiritual detriment kind of like being able to stack the deck, if you will. And some people have said, well, why didn't God just do that for you? Because that's what free will is all about. I mean, if I had grabbed hold of a gear and it was painful, and I said, but this is the one where I win the Powerball, <laughs> I'd say, you know what, let's just cut to the chase here, you know, versus you being tempted or, or thinking about all the good you could do. Let's just look at how much pain this is going to cause you and the people who touch your life. So, I guess in the short term, that was probably as good a moral compass as any. Anyway, after removing gears over and over and watching the machine reset over and over, I turned around and saw this huge pile of gears, you know, growing behind me. And I said, it's starting to look like if I don't have a bad future, I have no future at all. Even though I now feel less pain because I'm cleaning up the totality of pain in my life, and including the future. I said, am I going to die sooner from doing all this? And it said, your destiny has to fit itself around futures that are not meant to be. Your number of breaths are already counted. I will worry about your last one. I said, I don't know how comforting that is. I said, eliminating bad choices doesn't mean you won't make wrong ones. I mean, you know, to, to, to make a mistake isn't a sin. It's all about intention, right? I said, you won't know they're wrong until after they pass. Since right and wrong are variables over which you have no control, the answers to what comes tomorrow are a waste. Better is understanding the beauty of how everything fits and refits together. Basically, just faith in the grand design. I said, so what am I missing here in my lack of understanding? I said, what is clearly before you? Grace. No one deserves heaven. It can only be given by grace. It is your birthright, but it must be chosen at the expense of the world that separates us. And I said, well, this fixing my future is painful. And I feel ashamed I don't have some moral compass, you know, like a scripture or a mantra or something like that. I said, I'm only guided by pain. I said, I don't even know when or where these futures happen. They said, where is no more important than what or when? Removing your enthusiasm to further chain yourself to the world isn't as painful is carrying the crushing weight of those chains once forged around you. I said, you know, it's as if this place was created so I can do one thing and one thing only with no chance to screw it up. I said, if those with choices make poor use of them, then offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. 
And with that, I watched a, a gear disintegrate into dust as it passed out of view from the present to the past. And it said, you can't change the past, but you can make better choices in the future. Everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I am gentle with you. And I said, gentle, what's gentle about all this? Thinking about the nausea and everything. It said, you prayed for something for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. And with that, I looked back across that dead city landscape and I said, uh, I think I can live with this now. And with that, I remember seeing the scene basically fade from view. So I believe that's when I left, even though, like I said, when I returned, probably for a week, I really didn't have any memory at all. And it was in the rehabilitation hospital that I was moved to after ICU that this started to come back to me. And it's sort of a video loop in my head. It was just over and over and over. And each, with each iteration, there was more depth. There was more of a, an emotional almost like a kick in the gut again, to continue that metaphor, but it was just that powerful. And it was just increasing in its gravity and its impact. And I, I just remember thinking, what is this? And um, what's interesting is, you know, when you, you do hear about a lot of people who come back from a near-death experience and something is tuned up. You know, uh, PMH Atwater said, if you weren't psychic before, you're psychic after. If you were psychic, you're more so. You can kind of imagine how that might be. I mean, you, your sense of self has certainly been rebooted. I call it like I was Jim 1.0 and now I'm Jim 2.0 with the reboot. And with that, um, I, I had a really great team of nurses, 24 seven, you know, they were there three different shifts of eight hours. My morning shift was the best. And there was one particular woman named Jen, who was the shining star. And she was just so cool. She was so proactive. You could tell, tell that her care was sincere. And I realized that when we were talking, sometimes she was just hanging out for a little while. I knew how busy everyone was. So I said to her, I said, do you mind if I share something going on in my head with you right now? She goes, no. And I could tell she was interested. So I told her the very experience I just told you. And she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? She says, yeah, I don't want you to die. And I said, well, listen, you're a nurse. In a hospital, you see death all the time. She said, no, but you're different. I said, how so? She said, you're magical. I said, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, you know, again, we're very busy and everybody gets one doctor, maybe 10 to 15 minutes a day. I walk by and you have three to five doctors in here for an hour to hour and a half. And I, you know, I pass by the door listening in on what, what could they be talking about? And you're talking about life, the universe and everything, everything but your medical case. She said, I've never seen anything like this. And he said, one doctor wants to be in business with you so much. He has you on international phone calls at night with your leg up in the air in its cage, uh, doped up on God knows what kind of painkillers. Uh, trying to put this business together. She said, it's absolutely amazing. So I guess maybe that was the thing I brought back was empathy, um, a sense of connection to people. And remember, one of the uh, things I was told was to pay more attention to your relationships. I guess you could say that particular aspect of my life, uh, you know, the volume was turned up a little louder once I came back. And certainly, I would say that's my, that's my thing. You know, some people might come back with a 
uh, other psychic abilities. Mine was more like a, a super maybe connection or something like that. And I've, I, I do enjoy that. I do enjoy feeling that connection with people, especially in this context where we talk more about what we share than what separates us. I could take a break if you have a question for there. Thank you for sharing that story. Listening to it, it, it confirms or corroborates what we've heard from spiritual teachers, from other near-death experiencers about the vast variety of the experience and really what it is in our mind as we go through it. Listening to that, it's almost as if you were, you were correcting your future, you were clearing karma, right? And you um, were seeing the choices that would then bring you to this dystopian hmm. view of the world. Is that how you see it when you look at that? That that was um, like your beliefs going into the near-death experience. Were you religious in any way before that? I, I've never been religious, but I've always been spiritual. I would say, you know, when I talked about being interested in wildlife, interested in science fiction, interested in animals, there was a fourth interest that goes back to probably laying in a crib. And that was God. I wanted to know God. And my, my first, I would say, if I could share for a moment, um, an important experience that was given to me that actually came back to me literally 50 years later while I'm laying in the hospital. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I had all my questions about God. My parents said, enough with the questions, put on your suit and walk down the street to the church. So I did. And of course, the, the minister was busy before the service and was very busy afterwards, you know, shaking everyone's hand. So I didn't get to ask my questions, but I went back the next week and I noticed uh, he wasn't there. And I, know, I knew he had been there for years and I asked the lady sitting next to me. Now, this was in June of 1969 in Florida. So just keynote here, that's the South in the 60s. So that's gonna make what I'm about to say meaningful. Um, I said, where's Reverend Coolidge? And she goes, oh, we got rid of him. And I said, why? He said, well, he married his daughter to a black man. And like that explained everything. And I remember thinking, okay, so what? And I just thought I'd better just nod and look straight ahead and not say a word and go home and ask mom what, what's going on here. Because I said, if I, if I don't look like I'm fitting in, the crazy people might kill me. So I had to sit through this service that I was totally uninterested in. So I could go home and ask my mom and she said, oh yeah, it's like she forgot to tell me. Apparently, uh, Reverend Coolidge, who had a daughter named Rita Coolidge, who was a huge singer. You heard her on the radio all the time in the 60s and 70s. She was with Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, and all that. And she was a shining star in her own right. Uh, her slightly older sister, Priscilla, also a rising star in music, had married Booker T of Booker T and the MGs, who is uh, a black musician, but the man was a, a god with talent. I think he opened for the Beatles one time. He could play like any instrument. He was just amazing. So it was natural that two people, no matter their color, and, and, and Reverend Coolidge was a Cherokee Indian. So that meant Priscilla was half Cherokee, half white, if you will. So, I mean, y'all kind of mixing it up was going on here. And I just remember thinking, and that's all these people could see. Okay. 50 years later, laying in the hospital, this came back to me. And the understanding was now being given to me that I'm glad you've always asked questions about, you could say God would say it. He said, but if you walk the ways of man, 
religion, you will come out with more questions than you went in with. But if you, and as I did, he said, if you walk with me, we're going to color outside the lines. We're going to go places where people say, don't go there <laughs> to find the truth. He said, it's going to be really interesting. You never know what's going to happen next. And that's what I did. And he essentially was saying, I may not give you answers. Remember, I said I went there with questions. He said, but I will give you understanding. And from understanding comes meaning. And this was the light bulb going off literally 50 years later in the hospital after my near-death experience. So part of what has been going on with all of this is what do I do with this, right? What do you do with this? It feels like it's going to push out of your pores into the world around you. And it's hard not to talk about it. I mean, you know, what bigger experience could you ever have than almost and essentially touch the face of God? So that that's why I thought, well, you know, let me write a book. So I wrote a book. It's on Amazon called uh, The In-Between, A Journey of a Lifetime. I thought about calling it back by popular demand. I could probably do a stand-up comedy. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I could with regards to the uh, some of the funny aspects of the integration phase. And then, you know, I've spoken with IANS, uh, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. I've done presentation, a few talks with them and their groups. And, you know, we're exploring other ways to kind of get the word out, including the webinar series we'll talk about today. Well, really amazing. And your experience helps others in their own way. When you heard the voice, you recognize that as a greater power or would it be your higher self or both? You know, is there a difference? Because, um, I mean, if, I mean, how many sages have we heard say, you're already one with God, snap out of it. So if that's true, then that means anytime we hear the voice of God, we're hearing ourselves because we're already one with God. We are the drop in the ocean or we're hearing a more evolved aspect of ourselves, which it in itself is heading home toward God. Uh, I mean, it really does blur the lines on what is us and what is not us. But the bottom line is, as long as it's love, it really almost doesn't matter. So, I, but I've considered your question. And, and I, while I can't just sit here and say one or the other, what I can do is point to some things that, I find interesting, even if it was me, not, not even, you know, me when I'm one with God or me several lifetimes from now when I could be much higher or me five minutes from now, the fact that um, it was calm, collected, and seemed to understand what was going on was huge. And I think that that's the main thing to take away there, that um, it's really just about, and that's the title of our webinars. It's just about the art of letting go. And I can certainly tell you how that began in the hospital, if it's okay. Um, while I was laying there one day, and again, this is just going on and on in my head. And it's like, wow, you know, what, what's, what's happening here? Um, okay. Before the crash, uh, I might come home from a stressful day and sit down and make a rum and Coke, right? And I might make Another one, if I liked it. Now, I don't, not that it matters, but I'm, I know I'm not an alcoholic, but I probably was enjoying this more than I should. And my wife was concerned because she was a widow, 
with three babies and her husband had died in a drunk driving accident. So you can imagine her concern. And I just needed to check out for a little while. So I was sitting and I also um, would have cigars, you know, and so sometimes, um, yeah, that, that was my recreation. So I'm laying in the hospital bed. And then it's as if God removed from me the representation of alcohol and representation of cigars. And he said, okay, what do you want to do with these? And I just, so like, what? And he goes, do you want to take them with you? Meaning into your future. Or do you want to leave them behind? And he said, if you want to take them with you into your future, if you want to keep them as part of your life, I will carry them for you. And I thought, that's, that's interesting, because obviously the trick there is you have to be very mindful of who's in the room when you're doing this stuff. He said, but if you want to leave them behind, I will remove all attachment to them. They'll have no pull on you. It will be as if you've never partaken. In a split second, I said, leave them behind. I said, okay. And they just literally faded from view. And I can tell you, haven't had a drink since. I can go sit in a bar with friends who are obviously drinking and just, it didn't even occur to me. I'm a vegetarian. I've been one for 43 years. So eating meat is what other people do. And with this, having alcohol is something other people do. Now, I'm not saying it's bad or it's evil or anything. I'm just saying it wasn't right for me to continue doing that for my mission, if you will. The cigars I also put down for about six or nine months. And what happened was in, in that time, I realized I'm starting to have, a, and this part gets into my integration phase. Because you know, when you have this near-death experience, the first is uh, realizing that's what you've had. Because you know a lot of people who aren't conversant with that part of the paranormal, if you will, just might not know what happened to them. But as it settles in and they realize, okay, that's what I had and this is what it's all about, then, um, you know, people will say, well, are you sure it wasn't a hallucination? And you look at all the blown light bulbs sitting there or whatever else is acting wonky, especially electronic stuff. And you start to realize, no, nah, this wasn't a hallucination. And then you realize that 5% of the world uh, has had a near-death experience, again, all with very similar hallmarks, like the tunnel and things like that. Things that go way beyond what I would call the statistical randomness of a hallucination. And then you get into coping. Okay, I've had a near-death experience. There are the blown light bulbs. It's kind of funny, but it's telling me something is real. Now, what do I do with this? And the reason you ask that question is because everyone's treating you differently and they're saying you're different. You're thinking, I'm not different. You're saying, yeah, you're different. Your values have changed the way you, uh, um, the way you laugh and what you laugh at or what you were afraid of or what you're not afraid of. That's all changed. You look the same, sound the same, but it's like you're not the same. So you wake up every day thinking, is what was true yesterday still true today? And you, you have to stay in that state of questioning because in that state of questioning is a constant making and remaking. Um, you know, when Jesus said, I die daily, um, you, can see, you can see what he meant um, because you, you're always dying to the past and always birthing into the future, just like those, you know, the gears in the in-between. So as, as you get into that integration phase, that's, that's when you start to research and find some interesting statistics that pop up. For instance, 78% of people who've had a near-death experience go through a divorce. 
which is 50% higher than the already epidemic rate of 53% of uh, normal people going through a divorce in our country. So again, you can, you can understand why. And after 18 months in, in marriage therapy, realizing this wasn't going anywhere and why? Because nothing was broken. Nothing needed to be fixed. It was just different. I mean, you can't say I was broken because I'd gone through um, a near-death experience and you can't say the marriage was broken because of that. It was just, you know, it's not the same person. <laughs> there is something about walking in. And I wonder in this accident, in this deep, deep accident, and then in the coma, if you've ever heard about walk-ins and would you consider yourself a walk-in having to relearn things about Jim 1.0 and become Jim 2.0. Has that ever crossed your mind? It has. I was actually thinking about it just yesterday um, because I, I like to go out for people meditate in different ways. Mine is I go out and drive. I drive here in the country of Connecticut, the countryside through cornfields or whatever. It's a very meditative drive. And that's where, you know, it's just God, the in-between and me. Um, and I was just thinking about that again yesterday. And I thought, you know, if there is a walk-in here, if there is someone else, you know, riding shotgun with me, they're very much keeping a low profile. And I could say they are here by, it's more like by their influence in terms of the things I am attached to, the things I'm not attached to, watching how attachments are being given up. It's like, it's almost like after my near-death experience, the, the full body of all my attachments, it's like each attachment has its own little motor and its own little gas tank. And some attachments that aren't very deep or very profound, it's like they were already running on fumes. And so those were the first to fall away. Other attachments that maybe go back to childhood, um, takes a, they're, they're taking a little longer but some have fallen away, some are falling away. And, and that seems to be the direction overall of all my attachments. So where is that coming from? If Now, if I have someone else along who's trying to help, who doesn't even have those attachments because my life hasn't been their life, then that is going to make it a lot easier. But in their kindness and in God's mercy, they're, they're not making themselves like fully known, like, hey, I'm Joe and I'm going to, I'm, I'm here as your camp counselor and I'm going to help you out. No, 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 no. They, they are very much, I would say, if they are here, they're directing through influence. So I'm not ruling it out. And I am asking that question and, I, and there hasn't been a final answer yet. Thank you for even considering that. You definitely have a deeper understanding and a deeper connection from that experience now you mentioned that you had burst light bulbs. This is very interesting because I've heard that as a commonality as well. Tell us about the light bulbs. What happens there? You are more electric. Yeah, I mean, and this again is a very common after effect for people all over the world who, who have a near-death experience. Um, electric or electronic anomalies. I, I definitely noticed it with light bulbs going out more often and having to replace them. And then um, one day my son and I went out for a drive and we we're of course talking about the in-between and all that. So maybe that brings in some of the, 
radiation from the other side, just opening up a channel by talking about it and sort of getting into that flow. We walked in the house and I put my cold cup of coffee into the microwave for 30 seconds, like everybody does. We're still talking about the in-between. And when I reached in to touch it, literally after 30 seconds, as soon as I touched the cup, everything exploded and the microwave just fizzled. So I had to replace the microwave and of course, clean up the kitchen. Um, I also had to replace my entire um, air conditioning and furnace system in my house. Um, it literally just blew up. And not only that, when the people came out to replace it, I said, well, it's still not working right. They came back out, looked at everything, said, yeah, four of the five damper motors in all your ductwork, they also had blown up. And I said, why? I said, power surge? And I said, you think? And then my first time I ever talked with PMH Atwater on the phone, um, at 4.40, in, 4.40 p.m. into the call, um, I felt my energy change. And she remarked, she said, yeah, um, your energy's changing. I hadn't even told her anything up to that point. I just said, yeah, you're right. So again, that was at 4.40. At five o'clock, we concluded our call. I went outside, looked up at my porch light. It immediately blew out. I laughed and said, well, that's part of the course. I got in my car. I have a decent car. It has two clocks in it, one in the radio and one in the dash. The one in the radio was on normal time. The one on the dash was frozen at 440. And I had already had my car running because it was February and we're in New England. And I wanted it to be warm when I got in. So it had been running, operating normally until 440 and it just froze as soon as our energy started to meld. Um, and then a few weeks later, I was actually driving down to see her. PMH Atwater, for those who don't know, is a prolific researcher. She's in her 80s. Uh, she had a near-death experience starting back, I think, in January of 77 and had one a month for three months after that. Um, she's just amazing and, and a very gracious soul. And she's just incredible. And it was one of her books I was listening to that I really uh, started to understand what I had gone through. Anyway, I was going down to see her. Uh, down in Virginia on the way to see my mom in North Carolina. And when I was 20 minutes out from her house, I, you know, I have my phone on its little holder on my dash using Waze, a very popular GPS program to navigate to her. And all of a sudden, 20 minutes out, uh, an NDE friend of mine uh, texted me on Facebook Messenger and that popped up. She said, hey, I don't know why I'm thinking about you. I said, because I'm 20 minutes away from PMH's house. And she said, oh, tell her I said hi. And then Literally in my text field, now remember my, my hands are on the steering wheel. I'm not typing anything. I see my text field fill in by itself. It's definitely the field that only fills in if I'm typing, not my friend. And it said, thank you for being a kind and loving person. <laughs> Almost went off the road because I had no idea what was going on or what it was going to say next that, you know, like if it was something embarrassing I could recover from, like as a hacker in my phone. Anyway, I told PMH about it. She laughed and said, that's just the beginning. And then uh, three weeks later, I had two emails merge, both of a spiritual nature, uh, about spiritual subjects, but they were 11 years apart. And they this email was in a folder that didn't exist at the time. Uh, when, But literally, it was uh, from a, a woman in Austria who's doing NDE research who was writing back to me. But the body of the email was from my first wife 11 years prior, answering some questions about a certain yogic path we practice. And I've talked to the highest certificated people in Cisco, you know, IT, 
about how this could happen. How could two emails from 11 years apart merge? And they have no idea. They have no answer for that. So, wow. yeah. But I mean, things like cash registers failing in, in like five days in a row, five different stores in my near, my area, I'd go in and the cash registers would just fail. Um, transformers blowing up. When Again, this is usually when I'm talking about the in-between or something like that. So you just, you just accept it after a while. Fascinating. What we are learning is that higher consciousness creates a field around us and that even affects our electronics. So your higher consciousness or your deeper understanding, especially as you are connecting to that in-between space, it's almost as if more of you, more of you multidimensionally is coming in and that's electrical and fascinating. It's like the equipment itself needs to upgrade right along with you in your space. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. And it, it can be expensive too, but, but it, is, it is like that. And, and like in PMH's house, she has crystals all over the house, especially around her computer to not keep blowing her computer up. So it, it, is, it is a problem. And in fact, one friend of mine has um, you know, one of the small all electric cars and she was driving one day and the entire dashboard just started going crazy with lights. And she just videoed it as she was driving and said, see, yes, said, yep. <laughs> so, you know, electric cars and, and indie ears might have a, a little bit of a problem. Well, it's interesting that that happened at 440 with um, your friend. The, that's angelic uh, as well, the 4-4. So uh -huh. very, very interesting. So we're going to talk more about the integration phase and really what you've learned about the art of letting go and how you can help other people let go of, from things. But I want to go back to the gears and talk about that experience one more time, because that was like a deep understanding for you as you witnessed certain choices. Can you share what was some of, what were some of the gears or choices that you were changing in your future, especially when you would get that um, nauseous feeling or the pain that was actually where you had to look into that. So can you share a couple of those gears? I can only tell you two of them that were positive. Uh, it's like I wasn't really allowed to see the ones that I was removing because I had to reach up kind of like high up. I think it was representationally like the ones at eye level were more current and the ones above or more in the future. And sometimes it was like I was on my tiptoes just reaching up like this. And remember when I asked about it, it said it's not important to know. What's important is just to see how things fit and refit together. That basically I've got this. Okay, fine. But I did see um I came <laughs> I saw myself doing a home renovation project and I would say mm, about a, a little after a year I, that I came home, I did that exact project. And then with my daughter, I saw her with two children, uh, a little boy and a little girl at an amusement park one day. And she's going to be a fantastic mom because in so many ways, she's, she's still like a kid herself, but in the best ways. I'm a straight A student go, going for her master's now, but still the, the, the child lives in her. So I really wasn't able to see 
some of the bad things. I think partly is just because, you know, you, you can imagine how some of the choices we made are based upon temptation. Um, and for example, I mean, this is a real rough example. Imagine if in one of these choices, that was the day I chose to buy a Powerball ticket or something, right? Imagine I won. Uh, now you can imagine most of us would probably want to argue with God, please let me keep this. I, I promise not to be the big jerk or something like that. Um, or we can just cut to the chase and, and rather than argue about it, just measure it in terms of, yeah, this is the good you could do with it, but this is also the kind of pain that you having this could bring because you're just not ready in some ways, if not to have that type of money or influence, the things that will come to you, the people that will come to you out of the woodwork, maybe people that it's really hard to say no to for millions of different reasons. It could just be a bad choice. So how about we just remove that choice and it's not a problem. Remember, I got this and I got you. So it's okay. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So the integration phase here, what I find interesting is you are a different person. Your understanding is deeper. And here you're trying to come back into a life that it's like old shoes that don't fit anymore, a suit that doesn't fit anymore, skin that's different. 78% of NDEers have faced divorce. And isn't it interesting that that number for UFO contactees, those who've had experiences with contact are changed so much that their divorce rate is high as well. Your integration phase took you through a divorce, but it's all for the better. It's on a higher level than um, before. So share with us your integration process. I will. You know, it's interesting because um, when I was in very, very near the end of 18 months of marriage therapy, um, I realized we were just sort of an impasse. Like I said, it's because nothing was broken to be fixed. And the therapist did not recognize the validity of my experience. So I'd first say this, if you do go to a marriage therapist because you've had an NDE and it's causing problems in your marriage, make sure they do accept the validity of the experience or don't go because it will cause more pain and more damage than you went in with. And at some point, at one point, I just sort of stopped and I looked at them both and I said, listen, our marriage vow said, till death do us part. What happens when one of us dies? No matter that we return. Our covenant is broken. And the only reason we stay together now is because we choose to. There is no going back. There's only building anew. And I don't think, uh, I don't think she liked hearing that. <laughs> but that was sort of like the truth with both barrels. And um, that's part of, and, and this just welled up from inside. So I think, I think what I could do to best answer your question is, you know how life is full of truisms, you know, like you can't fight city hall or things like that, you know, or don't, don't, don't see somebody from, you know, don't date somebody from the other side of the tracks or things like that. all these little truisms that are really half baked and are only true in how half baked they are. And, Sometimes when I see people who are trying to do good in the world and they're, they're trying to point to a different way of thinking about things or doing things, 
I feel like I can, and I'm not going to name names, but sometimes I, I, I see the failings. I see why we're still talking about that, why we're still saying the same thing after a hundred years. And I said, you know, it's always, it's kind of like in our age of consumerism now, we're all so driven to chase the next, the, the next big thing or the, you know, the next one thing that we are told, well, you still need one thing more and I'm the one that's going to give it to you. And in the, the esoteric communities, it might be prosperity consciousness or the law of attraction, basically, you know, how to stand up here on stage dressed really well. I look like I've never worked a day in my life and I have no worries whatsoever. You know, and every, don't you want to pay money to hear me tell you how to do that? The problem is uh, we, we get into this, I need one more thing to be more productive, to be, to have $1 more in the bank, to be a better husband or a better wife or better looking or a better parent or my kids to do better. Uh, we're going to be chasing that one more thing with our last breath. And the only people who are going to profit off of it are the people selling the one more thing. And so I think that coupled with something God told me in the hospital, he said, always live life in celebration of the individual spirit. For no one and no thing can stand before a truly naked soul. That all the force of will you'll ever need is found in the art of letting go. And, you know, it, my, my past, one of the things I did, like a lot of young men, is I studied the martial arts. And one thing I really took to naturally was the Japanese sword, which, you know, one of the words for it could be like samurai, you know, the legendary Japanese swordsman of the Middle Ages. And they actually had a really cool saying because, you know, they practice Zen. And one was on the field of battle, when a samurai draws his sword and throws his scabbard away, it's because he'll never need it again. On this day, he's free to fight his best. So, you know, you look at a picture of someone surfing what might be the largest wave ever surfed off the coast of Portugal, and the wave is so big, it's deformed, it's a monster. But this person's ripping across it so fast that all the air bubbles coming off their board look like a jet trail. Well, in that moment, that person cannot have one thought about possible failure. They can't think about what just happened or what's about to happen. Talk about being present. This person has thrown that scabbard away and they've embraced death and they are now free to fight their best. They're free to be their best. I believe we're supposed to live every moment like that, whether we're surfing a wave or in a sword battle or we're just sweeping the floor, nursing a baby or making a big business decision. I believe we should always be in that state of letting go. And so the, the title of our webinar series is basically The Art of Letting Go. And a part of me trying to distill, if you, if you want to say it this way, it's like the near-death experience where the grapes, provided the grapes. And the integration phase is distilling the grapes into wine. 
And so what we've got here are five glasses of wine for five parts of the seminar uh, to try to distill out the essence of my take on what I went through and provide a different approach to life uh, for anyone for whom my message resonates. So that is great. Thank you. Share with us the art of letting go and what we can learn in each of these and how long each of these sessions are. Sure. I'll say right now, each session is um, between 35 and 40 minutes. They're dense. So yeah, you might need to watch it once or twice, but it's, uh, so we'll say it's power packed, right? Um, the five sessions, I'll name them with a couple of sub bullets and then I'll come back and explain them in a little more detail. The first one is called The Art of Letting Go, A New Approach. And it has two main bullets there. And one is uh, the next big thing, chasing it or being it. Another one is on emotional shielding, how to maintain your balance, how, you know, it, it's really hard to sometimes hold your center. And, and I can absolutely tell you how to do that. So we'll, we'll do that. And I felt this was important. Again, rather than standing up here and say, okay, here are the 10 things you have to do, one through 10, and here are the results. This is more about creating the space. And if you have the right space, the magic will happen on its own. And it's your magic. You own it. You don't have to pay somebody up on stage to tell you, and then they're pretty much taking credit. No, 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 no. This is all about creating the right space that pulls it out of the universe for you. You'll see. The second one is called the understanding of letting go. And there it's like the past is dust and how that is expressed in the art of letting go. And then logic and emotions and showing how both have their place. The third one is called the meaning of letting go. Do what you love and winning will take care of itself. And then the impossible now standing inside the eternity of a single moment, talking about that eternal present and why it's important to uh, have an intuition or a practice in that place and how you get there. The fourth one, the price and cost of letting go, the ambiguity of truth, meaning letting go of the need for control. And then linear and nonlinear seeing, answers and understanding. And the last one is called the fruit of letting go. And that comes back to what is the best version of yourself and on being authentic with a catchphrase, even atheists can be spiritual if they're living authentically. So let me expand on those a little bit. The art of letting go, a new approach. And this one is the next big thing, chasing it or being it. Again, everyone chases the next big thing with its promise of finding you know, more money, more free time, higher quality of life. But we chase it, again, with our last breath and the only ones profiting are the ones selling the show. Um, so we have to ask the hard questions. We have to see life through the filters we need more than through the filters we want in order to see clearly what is before us. And that's a that's a comparison I make here is that in life here, we do see life through the filters we want. When we look in the mirror, we see the best looking person or the most competent person uh, looking back at us. But on the other side, we're looking in the mirror of truth. And we, are, we see ourselves, we'll say warts and all, but it's also we see our light and we see, wow, this is, this is who we are and this is what we are. 
And we are who we are because of the choices we make. Again, it gets back to choices. And so the summary of this one will be a few, a few people make things happen. A few more watch things happen. But most wonder what happened. And we'll walk through that. Uh, another part of this is the emotional shielding I was telling you about. And like, let's face it, this past year, it was nonstop in curveballs, uncertainty, and outright anger. I mean, social media just went crazy. And some people in the street were going crazy too. So, you know, why wait until, you know, you really need it to know how to shield yourself. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll practice on how to keep our center before any of this starts, meaning let's practice it on a good day. And that way, when it's raining, we know how to open the umbrella. Uh, even on good days, you know, you'll, you know, in terms of the practice, I'll, I'll share with you how to maintain that mental balance and how to find and maintain your center uh, so that when things are coming your way, whether they're really incredible and it puts you on a high or really crazy and they make you sad, you'll learn to hold your center. Uh, you know, we have this sine wave of pleasure and pain. We, we are happy to rush up the curve toward the pleasure and we're happy to put on the brakes to come down to the pain. But what if instead we try to stay on that main axis that doesn't change in the middle, the one of acquiescence, the one that says when it's time to uh, accept happiness, we accept it. When it's time to accept sadness, we accept that as well. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But the bullets from that one are that as you think, so you become. And when the mind is still, you are present. So the second one is the understanding of letting go. And here there are two parts. One, the past is dust, the art of letting go. And this is where, again, we don't let half-baked truisms become our aphorisms. We have to question everything because questions create a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum and seeks to fill the vacuum. So, you know, both emotions and logics can work quickly, but intuition works instantly. You just look at something and you know it. Over on the other side, you don't have to ask somebody how they feel about something. You look at them, you know. It's just like that. Uh, Self-reliance builds intuition. Uh, this is part of letting go of the old ways of doing things. And if they don't work uh, and you're still doing them, that's self-sabotage. And if you, you know, have some success, it's possible that whatever got you here is not that will, which will get you there. It's time for a new paradigm. And so from this, we learned that the place you want to be isn't the one you go to or come from. It's simply a place you are. And that atonement is found only in making better choices in the future. Because again, the past is dust. Logic and emotions both have their place. You know, it's funny how in our society, if someone says you're a logical person, it's usually a compliment. And if they say you're an emotional person, it's usually not a compliment. Who made that rule? Who decided that? Um, but logic does tell us what should be correct. But emotions tell us what's important. And anytime we're surprised or we were in the need of a split second decision, usually the first part of that is emotional, which I find very interesting. Knowing what is important to me seems important. Uh, but anyway, we take our practice of emotional shielding that we just went over in lesson one, and we learn how to control that up and down oscillation on that sine wave of chasing pleasure and avoiding pain. We can move toward that constant, that main axis of acquiescence, as I mentioned, by accepting what comes 
And when it's time to let it go, we let it go. And the other real trick here is that if you're happy or if you're sad, there is a real core difference in saying I'm happy or I'm sad versus I feel happy or I feel sad. Because when you say I am something, you've become that story. And if I say I am happy or I am sad, well, then when does that story end? That's not so much a problem with happiness, except we might feel depressed when it's gone. But it can be a real problem with sadness. In talking with people, especially who've lost children or maybe a spouse, and now they're, they're the ones who are alive and left behind. Sometimes they feel guilty, things like this. They have a real hard time of knowing when to let that sadness go because they said, I am sad. They owned it by saying that. But surely their purpose in being born here wasn't to live the rest of their lives in misery. I don't think so. And so what they have to do is just, again, divorce themselves from those feelings and say, it's natural to feel that, but it's also natural to let it go. And we can talk about practices and getting to that place as well. And this can be applied to so many things. It's about attachment, whether we're, we're just using polarities of emotion as an example. So from this, we'll learn that, you know, some of the best stories are read by the heart and not by the mind. And there, you know, others are to be experienced more than understood. And that each emotion has its own breath coming and going in its own time. And then our third one is called the meaning of letting go. And this is where I mentioned, you know, do what you love because you love it and winning will take care of itself. You know, we get so wrapped around being about, around being winners of being the smartest kid in the room, we forget who's the wisest adult in the room. And as you start to move into a state of presence, you might have days you actually feel like you're becoming more forgetful. That's because you don't need your memory. You don't need your past anymore to tell you what you know. You're learning to rely on your intuition to tell you what you need to know and when you need to know it. And when you don't need to know it, it you just let it go automatically. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. And I've had some real intense experiences around it that were almost laughable. And I said, this could be inconvenient. <laughs> But at the same time, it was interesting because it really did sort of meld with that nonlinear approach of seeing things. And again, we'll get into some detailed examples so that you probably can recognize it occurring in your own life. Anyway, part of it, again, is getting into that observer mode where you kind of like remove yourself from the equation. You don't make it all about you and you just observe things and try not to react to them. Imagine you're just standing in a river with everything in the river flowing around you. The river is not you, you are separate. Uh, the balls that could represent emotions or thoughts or attachments, don't grab them. Just let them bump into you and flow around you and keep flowing down the river. That's who you are. You're standing in that place of peace and basically just observing everything, not grabbing onto anything, just being naturally detached. And more just feel the flow of the river than grabbing onto the things that are flowing through it. Anyway, over time, you realize you feel fewer desires that are associated with change and stimulation. And what you realize is this is a gravitation from the intense to the sublime. And there's a reason the higher planes are called the sublime. And if we're here chasing intensity all the time, you know, chasing the fast car or the, the, the good looking spouse or mate or the more money, more power and all that, 
Where is there room for the sublime? We're filling our hearts up with the things of the world and there's no room left for God or the, the sublime. And so part of getting into the right space is realizing this isn't a wrestling match with your ego, your lower nature or anything else. Again, it's about letting go. Here and now, you're within all those probability waves, to use a quantum physics term. You're standing at the crossroads of decision every single moment of what you can choose and how you can choose it. By choosing, you collapse one of those possibilities and move it into a desired direction through will. Or you can remain in a state of potential, putting off choice to the last possible minute, which means you're also waiting to get last minute information that might help you with your choice. But as the longer you wait, you can see the more intense, the things that are pulling you are to know what your answer is going to be. Are you coming or not? Are you going to join our firm or not? Are you coming to the party or not? Whatever, it's really interesting to watch it. So what you're doing in that moment is you're actually building up a tremendous amount of power. And interestingly, as a comparison, like a car battery, when you say it's 12 volts, that's 12 volts of potential not of actual energy delivery, which are electron volts. And so that's interesting. We're also saying that even in, in physics, we measure the power of something in terms of not its reality, but its potential. We're the same way. So again, your will is free until it acts. Then it will surf the causal wave it sets in motion. And that's when karma can begin. And there's also a way of acting that doesn't generate karma. And it is with intention that we do anything. The next, and then the next part of this is that the impossible now, standing inside the eternity of a single moment. And this is where uh, when you become present, your single-minded attention narrows your focus like a laser and expands the now toward infinity. And that gives your thoughts more power and you'll start to see more synchronicities. Being present is where you can see in a nonlinear fashion, the whole enchilada in a moment. And that's because you're not thinking sequentially, you're seeing things in terms of patterns. And when you see patterns around something, you see multiple entry points to the problem and how to solve it. And it really, again, becomes more and more about intuition. The more still we are in that possible now, as I was calling it, or the eternal now, or in the moment, uh, the more you come closer to that more powerful, unmanifest aspect of yourself, your potential. Einstein showed how in that suspended, unexpressed state of all and equal probabilities, we're actually every place there is to be at every moment in time. We're pretty much one with everything there is. And I can talk to you about that. Anyway, the, the main points from here are that there are at least two entangled particles, one at the beginning of time and one at the end of time. And if you change one, you immediately change the other, which means that in between the two of those, which right now would be almost 14 billion years, there's only the present, how time itself is an illusion. Across an infinitude space and impossible expanse of time, whatever happens to one thing happens to another. And we're all part of that equation. So again, time is an illusion. The fourth one is the price and cost of letting go. Uh, the first part of this is on the ambiguity of truth. 
you, you know people who are just not happy unless they almost know everything they're going to do before they get out of bed that day. And then there are other people who are just happier to just kind of take it as it goes and see what happens and just sort of say surf the wave. But it's kind of like looking at a Rorschach test, you know, that inkblot test you've seen. Some people look at it and they'll say it looks like an inkblot, but it's amazing how some of them actually trigger things in our mind. And in the face of that ambiguity, we project something of ourselves onto that ambiguity to give it meaning. And that has to do a lot with the way we live in the world. I remember talking to a, a very nice looking woman uh, one time and I joked about dating websites. I said, I'm sure you have a lot of problems on dating websites. She goes, yeah. I said, it's because man sees your picture. And, and, and let's face it, a lot of our pictures, they may kind of buy into objectifying ourselves. You know, we look like um, we're very attractive or we look very powerful or something like this, something that might be attractive to a certain population of people. The problem is once they buy into that, they start projecting on us all of their desires and hopes and dreams they've had since they were a child in which the attributes you appear to project are exactly what they feel they need to feel complete. But can they see the person behind the projection? The word glamour means illusion. Um, but, you know, to just give you another example out of the Bible, Job 121, it was kind of cynically rendered, but it was true. He said, naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I will depart. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. So, you know, depending upon you know, what it is you're having to deal with at the time, whether it's something that is very alluring or whether it's a thorn in your side, you know that it has to do with your own personal integration of your own spiritual truths to which this lesson will point. Um, again, it's all about the relationships. And in the end, letting go means letting go of the need to personalize everything and make it all about you. That, you know, Remove yourself from the equation and you can see more patterns of information there and you can think more clearly. Again, emotions are important, but it doesn't mean we have to react emotionally every time like a knee, uh, knee reflex. You know, we just wait, we watch the patterns, and then we choose this is the path and these are the emotions that go with that path. So, again, um, just applying this to relationships as an example even though our marriage vows say, until death do us part, what happens when one of us dies, even when we come back? Since most of us get divorced, and that's at a lot higher rate than normal people, it almost asks the question, is God benevolent or benign? Because there's in one of those, it's the universe and God is a little more proactive. And one is a little more like, I'm going to create the space and let you fill it in however you need to go. Which one is more aligned with giving us our free will to make our own choices, to make our own mistakes, and to grow from those mistakes. So this is something we'll also be able to talk about. Another part of this uh, particular webinar will be on linear and nonlinear seeing. And again, really kind of getting back into when people say, in order to solve the problem, you have to sort of uh, define the problem when we talk about thinking inside or outside the box, defining the problem is defining the box. And then usually we're trying to solve the problem from inside the box. Whereas a more artistic approach would probably be, I just need to create a blank canvas. Like if, I, if I'm a painter, yes, I want to start with a blank canvas. If I'm cooking, I might want to start with a very clean kitchen. Something that then, again, sort of like a vacuum, it pulls out of me what 
the moment is calling for. You know, I feel suddenly inspired to cook this, or I feel suddenly inspired to paint this. And I think approaching life from a more artistic point of view is something we could benefit from a lot more than we do. You know, again, we always try to approach it from logic, control, almost a mathematical approach so that we have less ambiguity. I think it's important to be comfortable with ambiguity because when we are faced with ambiguity and we know it's something real, we know something big is going on here, we tend to ritualize it and then it becomes religion. Comf but truth is highly ambiguous. I mean, look, at, look, look, I could joke and say, look at your fortune cookie sayings. They're, they're highly ambiguous. But also look at the Tao Te Ching that was written 2,600 years ago in China. Talk about ambiguity. But when we read it, we can tell there's such incredible truth here. And it's all about becoming comfortable with that. And like the Dalai Lama himself said, religion is the tip of the finger. Spirituality is the moon to which the finger points. Nowhere in here do we say, this is how you get to the moon. Many are those ways, but that is definitely where you want to go. The tip of the finger may be an okay place to start, but it's not where you want your story to end. So it's all important to, again, keep questioning, question everything, and don't accept truisms, again, as your aphorism. Always think, about challenging yourself. So anyway, we'll, we'll work through that. And we'll talk about how becoming still creates the vacuum and nature wants to fill that vacuum and how we can direct that vacuum with our intention, which can be separate from desire. And without desire, we're not the prime movers. And I think that's really important is because once we assume we are the doer, that's when we start taking on karma. When we realize we're just facilitators or we're not the doers that some some other prime mover is, then we can start to learn how to act without karma. And that's pretty key to getting out of here. The last session is called the fruit of letting go. And this is where we get into what is the best version of yourself? When I came out of my coma in the hospital, my wife had taped to the wall this picture of me smoking cigars with these tribesmen in Afghanistan because I just smuggled a bunch of machine gun belts to them out of Tajikistan. And it's a real macho picture. And it's like the perfect match.com picture for a lot of guys. Um, but she taped that up there because she was thinking, this is the best version of yourself to me. And this is who I want to encourage you to heal back to. I looked at that picture and thought, who's that? That guy died in the plane crash. I'm not who that is anymore. And that's, again, about projections and about the new realities. So anyway, um, let's take it back to for a moment to Joseph Campbell and the, the hero's story, the hero's journey. Our heroes aren't usually the ones who are born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They're usually the ones who get knocked down, the crap kicked out of them, dragged through the dirt. And the only reason they get up out of the dirt and keep walking is because if they don't, that's where they're going to starve because no one's coming by to pick them up. Why? Because we all understand adversity. We all understand being frustrated to realize our goals. So anyone who gets up out of the dirt and they keep going in spite of all odds appeals to us because we've all been there. You know, we've all had these challenges. Um, it's important to sort of realize then that the best version of ourselves 
is that person who's dirty, skinned, and bruised and all that. But we're going to keep pushing on because at the end of the day, when we get to our goal, we know the battle we've won. So, you know, if, if that's what's in our hearts, then we reduce all those actual probabilities to choose from to a narrow few. And that mercifully blinds us to some others. So we can again talk about how that process works. Um, again, we might still make wrong decisions, but they don't have to be bad ones. Like I said, it's not a sin to make a mistake because of the intention. Uh, you could do the same action and it, you know, is a what they might call a good action or a bad action, but based on your intention, you're stuck with the outcome. So you just need to learn how to break that chain that most people have in terms of what drives us to do things and our expectation of results. Try to just let go of the results. Again, just enjoy shooting. Uh, well, enjoy doing what you love and don't worry about the outcome. If you do it because you love it and you do it well enough, the outcome will take care of itself. So in this one, you'll realize that the mind is a sophisticated mirror. It is what it sees. Be careful what you show it for you can be anything. And the last thing I want to say about the last webinar would be on living authentically. Um, and when I said, you know, even an atheist can be spiritual, I mean, I'm sure we all have plenty of jokes or have heard funny stories about people sitting in church who are there every Sunday and they serve on all the committees, but they may sit also in judgment of people who don't come to church, okay, probably in ways they shouldn't. Whereas I'm sure we've all met some people who just may um, be struggling with things and may struggle with alcohol or one form of addiction or another, or just one form of not having it all together or doing very well, but they own it. They, they don't make excuses. If you were to go and call them on their crap, they'd say, yeah, I know, I know. And they wouldn't be defending themselves. You know, there's a certain honor in that. There's a certain humility in that. And that's why I say, you know, when people, for example, say, do you want respect or love? Well, if you don't first have respect, the love isn't real. I would say it's the same here. The sooner you can live authentically, and that's, again, looking in that mirror of truth, seeing life through the filters we need more than what we desire, the more we can see ourselves right here, right now, as we truly are. And we can accept our failings as well as the really great things about us. And we can say, you know, it's just time to work on things. It's time to move forward. And so I think, you know, what we have to do is just, live authentically, again, warts and all, and push through and just keep our goal in mind. And a lot of times that can be by choosing company we keep. Um, one time someone asked a guru, uh, is it true that uh, our destiny is written on, in our palms? And he said, yeah. And the guy said, so why do I need you? He said, well, just because you know it's going to happen doesn't mean you can control it. But that's if you're choosing to live by the laws of the world. If you choose to live by the grace of God, then that's not written in any palm. That is not tracked by any star. If you choose to live by that set of laws, you never know what's going to happen next. And again, that's all about being comfortable with ambiguity and not trying to control things. So I really think it sort of tracks back to Socrates, you know, man, know thyself, uh, awaken to the meaning of life as you see it, and then back that into the question of what your unique purpose is. That's how you answer that question. You put that knowledge into practice, 
maybe first by avoiding situations that hit all your hot buttons. And then you start to see how different approaches to different situations are bringing out a better part of yourself. The word educate means to draw forth. So when we talk to people, imagine we talk to them in terms of their highest potential. That will come through in the vibration of our words and the choice of our words and our body language and our nuance. And even if we pause, because that's pregnant with meaning. And so what may happen is you're the only person in that person's life who's ever talked to them like you believed in them. And that can change their lives. It could be, it could change your life. It could be amazing and awesome. So don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And again, a benign God versus a personalized one means he's ready to help us, but we must do the work in making constantly better choices. To that end, it's what in our, that's in our hearts that define us. And if we want to access those higher planes, we have to start living like we're in those higher planes. And that means choose the sublime when you can over the intense. Learn to be comfortable with that ambiguity. Learn to be comfortable with not always being in control, but be mindful of our intentions and be mindful of our desires. But it doesn't mean we have to own them and they don't have to own us. So a few points of benefit of going through this webinar series will be learn how to jump off the hamster wheel. Realizing that you have everything you already need to be successful. Trusting in your native intelligence to figure things out. And being emotionally resistant to being swept up by all the hype or all the anger. And learning how to live with less stress. I think that's something we could all use right now. And how to become more present, more centered. So that's it, Lauren. What a large body of work and teachings from your deep understanding, from your near-death experience. Literally, you were on a mission to help everyone that you can reach, that you can touch, how to truly integrate these wisdom pieces, this knowledge that you have. And we thank you for that. These webinars, as they come out, you're going to have them pre-recorded in a lecture that you're going to play, but then you'll be able to interact with the audience so that they can integrate. That, that is exactly right. I would say I could be, you know, with a, with some heads up, we, we can have a one-on-one -on -one session uh, whenever it's needed. I wondered, would it be helpful to have a one-on-one -on -one session with people very near the beginning and then very near the end to just sort of see what the delta is? What were the changes? You know, what was meaningful to people? What resonated with them the most or what might they still have questions about? So, you know, personal sessions are there, I think, for whenever people need them. And I think the common thread running through them all will certainly be uh, the different chapters, if you will, of the webinar series. As you, as you watch this and see what the different sessions are about, if there's one, like I said, that you either have questions about or one that particularly resonates with you or you know, an area of work to be done, if you wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one session earlier, we could. And then I would say toward the end of the series, maybe have another one-on-one -on -one session and let's just sort of see how we did and answer any other questions and just sort of see where it takes us from there. Who knows, maybe it will, if enough people 
said the same thing or want the same thing or have the same questions, maybe it'll lead to a, a, another webinar series where we can really start to drill in on just some things. Beautiful. Well, that is available right here on this webpage. You are a beautiful teacher for this, going through this in your own journey and understanding it and helping others understand it. There's a question coming in. Can you help someone see a situation that should be let go of? Sure. Um, that, that's where having, you know, when I said before about learn to take yourself out of the equation, by having a trusted companion on the journey for just even just a little while, like you realize, oh, this person's walking next to me and we're having a good conversation. Think about it. The kinds of conversations you could have on a Greyhound bus with the guy sitting next to you or the woman sitting next to you, you're never going to see them again. It doesn't really matter. But you get to say, you know, I have a strange situation I'd just like to bounce off of you. What do you think about this? They'll give you a probably a very honest, totally different take than you've ever had before. And it just may be the most meaningful thing anyone's ever said to you in their life. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to hear what people are going through, what they're either wrestling with or what their epiphanies are. And it's really about comparing notes, isn't it? I'm not presenting myself as a guru. I'm not even presenting myself as a teacher. I'm saying, I'm on this journey. You're on this journey. Let's compare notes. Maybe I'm a little further ahead. Maybe you're further ahead in some things. But let's compare notes and let's, let's help each other get further down that road. Yes, comparing notes. And I love what you said. It's all about love. It's all about love and choices that we make from this now moment. So you're really assisting us in tuning into these faculties within ourselves, tuning into the now moment, the power of the now moment, tuning into our intuition. We know now more than ever, that is our guidepost. That is our way forward. And also you, really recommend doing what we love and the winning aspects will come. This is what all the great teachers share and it is your truth and it is a universal truth and it is something that's innate within us. And so how profound. Thank you for offering this for those who wish to take that deep, deep dive within and truly birth into this now moment. Thank you, Lauren. I appreciate the opportunity. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to work with you. I appreciate the opportunity to meet uh, people who visit your site and who obviously uh, find a lot of good things here for themselves. So happy to join the party and maybe we can even have some fun with it. Great. Thank you for your beautiful work and your sharing on your understanding of the multidimensionality that we all are and the greater being that we all are. Thanks so much for being here. As we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to share to close this space? Just again, um, you know, a couple of things the in-between said to me when it said, the in-between isn't a place you go to or come from. It's simply a place you are. And then when it said, all the force of will you'll ever need is found in the art of letting go. Always live life in the celebration of the individual spirit. For no one and no thing can stand before the brilliance of a truly naked soul. And just feeling into that right now feels sublime. 
and powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this quantum conversation. And thank you for dancing with us to the cosmic heart. As we raise our own vibration, we raise the vibration of the planet. This show is dedicated to you and all awakening hearts as we are here to shine our bright light and amplify our love. Access all quantum conversations, special offers from our guests, and online healing retreats by visiting AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and from my sacred heart to yours, I honor your magnificent love and light. We leave you now with music from the universe. Music literally created by the universe as musical notes were assigned to mathematical equations. The result is this beautiful music available at AcousticHealth.com. Namaste. Namaste.